Hello, and welcome to Final Show Films. I'm John, the executive producer here, and I've got a few pre-show notes for you. First, a reminder. All of the content we produce is available on our website at finalshowfilms.com, as well as youtube.com slash sensaku, sensaku.podbean.com, twitch.tv slash sensaku, and on iTunes. We are only able to do the things we do thanks to the kind support of our Patreon donors. We give a special shout-out to our $25 tier supporters, Antitonic and Cat Waterflame. If you'd like to support us that way, be sure to check it out. Secondly, a thank you to the folks over at 411mania.com. They produce articles and content related to wrestling, MMA, movies, music, and gaming. Go check them out. We appreciate their support as well. And lastly, be sure to subscribe, comment, and rate, if possible, wherever you listen to or watch our content. It helps us know what you like, what you don't like, and helps us make more content. Feedback is always appreciated. With all that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Everybody, we're back, and I'm echoing in Jack's headset. <laughs> Fuck. Hey, everyone. I'm John at John A. Bates on Twitter, and we've got with me Jack. Hey, everybody. This is Jack. I'm at Alt F4 Gamers on Twitter, and we got Jeremy. And I am Jeremy, and I'm J Thomas four one one Mania. And in case any of you have forgotten, because uh, it's although, been fucking forever. Although uh, theoretically, if I've edited this correctly, there was a re- there was a bit of a recap uh, at the beginning of this. Um, <laughs> weird critical thinking, a critical role we watch podcast that has been gone for a while because Jack got a new job and we had to change time yep. slots. So, yay! But, wait a minute, is, did you say back. you're editing? I I do edit, Jeremy. I just don't edit. <laughs> Thoroughly, <laughs> I was gonna say because your mantra is usually I don't I don't edit, edit shit. I don't edit shit. <laughs> I don't edit shit out. I still have to do. I put things at the beginning and end. I, okay, that's fair. And <laughs> sometimes they take out the, music and take out the breaks. And anyways, we are a professional fun podcast. So yeah, so this week we're talking about episode twenty, Critical Role: Trial of the Take, Part Three. Uh, this episode is starring Orion Akaba as Tiberius, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel Don, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, uh, as always Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master, and with special guests Will Fidel as Kashaw and Will Wheaton as Thorbeer. Um, previously on Kirk Roll. Vox Machina, throughout its adventures, found itself in the city of Vasselheim. They came to seal away the Horn of Orcus that they had torn from the head of the Beholder, Kavarn, deep in the Underdark. Once they had... Once, I don't know why there was a pause there. Once they had completed this journey, they spent some time in the city just trying to figure out what could be done there. Preparation for possibly Keyleth making a venture to one of her Ashari tribes. Uh, and during that time, Grog entered into a fighting ring and lost. The party then saw that there was some sort of Hydra-like creature attacking the walls of the the walls of the, the outskirts of the city and determined that they were going to be adventurers and go kill it 
No good um, deed goes unpunished. <laughs> which they, they did find and hunt down the Hydro, and they fought it and killed it, and upon killing it, they discovered that there was another group hunting the Hydra, an actually sanctioned group from the uh, from the Slayer's Take, the, hunt, the Monster Hunters Guild of Vasselheim. Apparently, it's illegal to hunt without a license, or at least it's illegal to hunt a thing that somebody else has already been contracted to hunt. Uh, so in Breaking the Laws of Vasselheim, they could, they could either be tried for it or return to the city and uh, uh, join their guild. They opted for that because they have a record of being thrown in jail. Uh, and so they were brought before the guild master of the Slayer's Take, Huntmaster Vanessa Sindrell, uh, and, the, and that choice was reiterated to them. Uh, which they decided to take it up. And so previously on Trials to Take Part 1 and 2, uh, the group was split up and we saw half the group doing their trial. And now Part 3 and next episode's Part 4, we will be seeing the other half and how they live. I want to talk a little bit, though, about that choice first, sure. if that's okay. Um, uh, so, like, frequently in stories like this, the protagonists run afoul of the law. Um, and frequently, uh, your storyteller or whoever's writing the, the, the narrative gives the option of basically, you know, treat it like a criminal thing, a la John Grisham and everything that that motherfucker's ever written, um, or come up with an alternate, usually slightly more action-y, uh, type scenario and to, resolve the the conflict that the uh the protagonists are having with the law and order and how society runs and that sort of thing do you guys feel like in a story let's say of this caliber quasi adventure fiction high fantasy-esque there's generally a better way to go or do you feel like sometimes there's there's a little more of a uh, of wiggle room in making an interesting story out of whichever avenue the party decides to take jeremy um go ahead i'm sort of collecting my thoughts a little bit on that because that, that's a bit that's a big topic um <laughs> not throwing pass out the, the buck. softball jack threw us a question that we weren't expecting pass the buck <laughs> could you could could, Again, could, could we you are a professional podcast both for jeremy and myself and the audience could you sum that question down a little bit sure um Society runs across uh, runs generally by a fairly consistent set of rules if you're having an organized civilization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most of the time that you break those rules, there is a system in place that generally involves a lot of clerical work and legalese and courts and trials and shit like that. Right. Right. When your fantasy adventure protagonists run afoul of the law, you can generally either have them go on trial and face the music and try and uh, solve the problem mm -hmm. according to the normal uh, schematic, or you can come up with a alternative, generally more action-adventure-y feeling um, sort of solution <clears throat> for how they get out of trouble. Right. Do you feel like one or 
either of those is generally the better solution to a okay, okay. party running, so, a, running afoul of legal legal trouble? Or do you feel like you can make an interesting story out of both, despite you, expectations and that sort of thing? You can. I mean, we're talking about storytelling, first of all, and there are mm-hmm. no absolutes. I'm of the firm opinion that if you can find a good take on it, there is not a story that cannot be well done. There's not a story that cannot be compelling. This is why I, when when people get all up in arms about remakes and reboots and all that kind of stuff, I'm I my tendency tends to be oh calm down because we don't know what their take is going to be on it. There are ways to there are ways to tell this story that could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, there are only there are only so many stories, but there's an, an almost infinite number of ways to tell those stories. Exactly. Now, when we're talking about obvious between the two of those, I think the more action adventure is 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 definitely the one that is easier and probably in most cases a more potent storytelling method. I personally I enjoy seeing the the um uh the legal aspect of it or you know like you said the paperwork filled aspect of it that can be fun in a comedic bent mm-hmm. because you have this this juxtaposition of you know the the these these high octane epic adventuring group or not because they're lower lower level but still this this group of people who their days are filled with you know setting watches at night and then going out and spelunking dungeons and being Lara Croft and 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 fighting monsters dealing with the banality of triplicate forms and legal clerks and, and, and all so, of that. There's a lot of fun to be had there, but there is also, I think, and, and I've run several of these, not necessarily in, in fantasy situations, but in World of Darkness games I've played, the legal aspects of in a World of Darkness style game is, it, it can be really, really well done it can get at a lot of the core themes there and it can be kind of terrifying because when you have vampires in jail um and the sun's about to come up you've got problems so basically as far as i'm concerned it depends on where you want to take the story and if you can find a theme that fits in to the kind of story that you're telling. Like, I could conceivably, um, uh, for the Eberron game, if I'm thinking about this, uh, if you're not listening, you should definitely listen to our Eberron podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, if I were to take that group through sort of the, the, the you know, they got captured and arrested in... in uh, in Thrain or in, 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 in Sharn to deal with something. That would actually be a really interesting storyline because 
the Eberron game has been largely set up as these characters who are who are going dealing with sort of these corrupt institution of powers and 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 elements of of things that are sort of greater that the than them that they're struggling against like destiny mm-hmm. and and all of this stuff. So there's a lot of thematic stuff I could do with that. If you haven't touched on any of that at all, it's going to feel weird if you suddenly do it. Um, so for, for, for me, the, 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 the best way for me to explain my thoughts on this is to, for me to reference, uh, a storytelling medium that has done both of those and made them both comedic and dramatic in, in separate ways. And that is video games, um, mm-hmm. specifically J- uh, Japanese video games quite often. Mm-hmm. And, and to give you an idea, uh, the, uh, Shin Megami Tensei Persona games, and the uh, um, uh, ace, ace, uh, the ace attorney. Ace attorney. Yep. Um, what, what these both of these games deal with that kind of a situation where you know you have to go above, or below, or around the law, or break the law, or whatever, and then deal with the consequences. Uh, in the ace attorney games, you play from the perspective of the attorney. And there's a lot of drama and very interesting and interesting storytelling told through the procedure of going through the law, and and while it's not 100 percent accurate to a actual functioning legal system, it's still it's still a using a legal system to tell a story. And the Persona games, quite often, you are going around the law or above or below the law because the of the official forces are either the enemy or they are so blatantly unaware of what's going on that there's nothing they can do. Um, and that sort of leans back into that sort of action adventure uh, style of doing it. I find that much like those two games, it depends on your audience. And in some cases, if you're writing a book, who you're writing for, and mm-hmm. if it's a game, who you're, who you are GMing for. Um, if you have people that are very much invested in um, their characters and how their characters fit in, and if they like to play certain roles, this could be a chance to let certain members of the party shine. For instance, in Critical Role, this if they had gone through the legal route, that would have been a point for like Scanlan and, and Vex uh, to really, and, and Scanlan, Vex, and Percy to really sort of uh, take over an arc and the three of them dealing with legal matters because you've got your talker with, with Scanlan, you've got your, uh, the law guy, the, you know, so the, the law knowledge guy with Percy, and then you've got your barter schemer rogue with, with Vex. And these three separate aspects could have made a sort of made a, a legal, you know, a, a legal defense case system, uh, arc very interesting and very rewarding. That's ultimately not the route they took, but it it just depends on what you have to work with. Like if you have a if you have a group full of barbarians, then trying to run into a legal system while hilarious probably wouldn't work, um, unless it was a very specific type of legal system. Um, and likewise, if you have a party full of wizards, making them go through trial by unarmed combat probably also ain't so good. Right. Um. So it it it, it the you know it it. it as with every, as with a lot of our answers on this show, it depends. And personally, I like aspects of both. I know I, I, I quite often play characters who are more go to problem solve problem. Um, but I, I do have characters that are more 
let's investigate and find the nuances and things. So uh, it just depends. Cool. What about you, Jack? Um, I kind of feel like it falls into the expectation category as well. Um, for something, it's it's easier for me when I'm running a, a tabletop RPG because all I have to do is look at my players' expectations because as a storyteller, you know, I'm there to tell a good narrative, but mostly so that they'll have fun. And if they're a kick-down, murder-things adventure type, those are the type of solutions that I should be trying to tailor my story to for my players to have fun. If they're more into the social intrigue, though, and things, especially if the setting contributes to it, um, you know, like if if a legal matter had cropped up in the Walking Shadow game, that probably would have fit fairly well, both with the themes that were being explored during that story and during the for the uh, the types of characters uh, that had been developed by all the players involved. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's one of those things that can go either way. It just struck me as something here that may have been an interesting subversion of expectations. You know, we've got 18 episodes or so of these characters, you know, on quests and adventures and hunting down monsters and fighting against the enemy and, and that sort of thing. And then to have that sort of shift on its head, Hey, you're back to civilization. So now you're dealing with civilization type problems um you know in a in a much more narrower focus could have been interesting but once again you know depending on how the the players were were wanting to to play it out i feel like the the storyline that they they opted for works very very well yeah i mean it's it's important to give it's important to have the option right whether or not they take it yeah yeah um so as the first half of the team leaves to go to the Slayer's Take Guildhall, the remaining members decide to head into town and get some fresh supplies. Uh, in in Prior to actually leaving the tavern, they have a drink and have a chat, and we get a little bit... We get... the thing. One of the things that I love so much about when actors play characters... When actors play characters, capital C, um, in, in things like this is they can occasionally distill their character down to a single sentence. And Tiberius does that in the opening five minutes of this episode <laughs> with the phrase, I'm a storm wind. I shouldn't be here among these peasants. Yep. My favorite line in the episode. <laughs> Tiberius is all the worst parts of old money. <sighs> and it's like, Oh, if that line, as a, from a writer's perspective, if that line had come up at episode one, I feel like Tiberius would have been a much more understandable character. Because um, this is actually <laughs> the first time that we sort of get that that distilled concept spoken by him or or or, or mouthed by him. Previously, there's been there's been aspects of the elitism, but not never quite so bluntly formed. Um, I don't and, know that. Yeah, go ahead. I don't know that he would be better received. Maybe not I better think received, that expectations would have been set. Yes, that is definitely fair to say. Like it, it that doesn't change his elitism, which I think is has always been somewhat clear, but was definitely. Um, in, in the first couple of episodes, you know, we saw a little bit of town interaction, interaction with people, and you see an undercurrent of that, but then they're underground for like ever. 
Yeah. So we didn't really get a chance to, to, to see a lot of that. Um, and for a lot of the time, he just seemed slightly irritating. He for, just seemed, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it doesn't not make him that kind of character that people who dislike him, who dislike the character dislike, but it would definitely, like we wouldn't have necessarily started off as okay. Well, he's sort of just this bumbling guy who doesn't really understand, like thinks he knows everything, and and clearly doesn't know how to interact with dwarves at all. Um, to oh, this is why he doesn't interact with these people because he doesn't interact with anybody who's not super powerful and super exactly. wealthy. So like, I yes, I can definitely see that. Yeah, and again, I just I, to be clear, I wasn't trying to say that he'd be better yeah. received, just that he'd be better understood. Yes, um, because we went from like our first impression of him was bumbling wizard who's slightly haughty. This is Lucius Malfoy. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's fair, fair to like, say. that is exactly what that line said to me and at right. that point is when it's sort of oh okay now I know how to approach this character from a viewer's perspective mm-hmm. and it's taken 20 some odd episodes to get there but um, we finally sort of have that and I love that it exists I love that it's in the first five minutes and that is by far my favorite line of the night Mm-hmm. Um, it is that little throwaway line of I shouldn't be in here and spoken with such venom. Like you can tell by the way he, he doesn't just say I should a storm, a storm wind shouldn't be here with these peasants. He says a storm wind shouldn't be here with these peasants. Yeah. And it's just that that delivery, the utter disdain. Yeah, it's, it's my. <laughs> The thing that I had written down as a note is Tiberius is a dick to bar staff. Um, <laughs> Which is true. Because he was. Yes, exactly. Um, but, but, but the sentiment behind it is pretty much the same as your, yeah, it's like, it's like so, so Blanket. there. And by this point, like we have enough of Tiberius that it's fully within character. And this is exactly the kind of thing that's expected. But it's still a little bit like it's so open. Yeah, it's it's your it's your race. It's it's when your racist grandma grandpa starts talking politics. Like it's just (laughs) why. (laughs) Holy shit! You're really going there and doing that and saying those things about those people in public when they can hear you. (laughs) Yup. And it was a really good 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 thing. Uh, so as as they as they walk around, they discover a familiar tent uh, that they have previously encountered back in Amman. Apparently, uh, mm-hmm. Tiberius storms right in, assuming that he will find the person that he was expecting, which we learned to be uh, some a woman named Trista, who uh, Keyleth announces the name as Vex and Keyleth go in, and they see a elven woman sitting behind a table with a deck of tarot cards. Uh, there was a noble woman in there that quickly gets you know shuffled out, uh, and we see that uh, this woman. Um, uh, corrects them in that her name is Forsythia. Trista is her sister, and then reveals herself to be a hag, uh, uh, which is specifically a hag is a um, 
a a one of the more interesting creature types in D and D that can be that are typically sentient monsters, sentient creatures that uh, dabble in lots of magic. And in this case, apparently, a pair of hag sisters that are fortune tellers of some kind. Yep. Generally, wicked fey creatures. Yep. But not always w- wicked fey creatures, but not always instantly kill on sight. No, no. Because they're also smart and they tend to know things. Yep. Or yep. Have they tend to be one of the more interesting fake creatures who can serve, particularly for a lower level party, as a a um, overarching overarching adversary or oh, even yeah. ally. Yeah, mm-hmm. or a little bit of both. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so this one in particular is the sister of one they've met previously and is a fortune teller. Tiberius asks her for information on the Boros Ring, one of the fabled items that he's been hunting, and she tells him that uh, one item to quest after is enough, basically refusing to uh, refusing to give him any more information that once he finds it, uh, she'll be happy to give him more information on anything else. Um because they've already, he already, they've already been, he's already been given some information about it, and and right. he wanted more. Um, they purchase a few healing items from her and don't get any. And, and even though they they start asking, wanting to ask her questions, but she reveals that, um, she reveals that she has been sort of giving fortunes or telling the fates uh, to people already, and it's fairly draining, and we, we sort of get a little bit of a glimpse into the world, uh, a little more of a glimpse into the world that, that Mercer has created here by uh, the understanding that divination, or at least intensely powerful divination of the kind that hags might use, can be physically draining, as well as just, you used a spell slot. Yep. Um, yep. They purchased so yeah, they purchased a few items, and then Vax asks about trading items because she doesn't willing to answer any questions. Uh, and he requests um, a strong poison. potion, a strong poison, which she offers him in exchange for a favor redeemed whenever she sees fit. Which is a very fey bargain. Classic yep. fairy thing. Yep. Like I will give you the thing that you want, but in return you will give me something else, and I won't tell you what it is or when you'll give it to me until I want it, and you have to give it to me. Nope, 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 nope. Seems nope. legit to me. I'll shake your hand. Uh, <laughs> which uh, the adventurers always do. That's we'll that's also be classic. live streaming Changeling later today for those of you that want to look. Mm. That's that's classic, like Rumpelstiltskin, right yeah. there. Um. um they but this, this oh, sequence was really awesome for me. Like, it's possibly my favorite sequence of the entire episode. <laughs> um, because even now, many years down the line, um, this is a loose end that has not been yeah. tied up. And I, for one, am a fan of loose ends in fiction, especially ones like this that sort of just might me only tangentially adjacent to the actual main plot, but serve to expand on the setting and show that there is a lot more going on than just whatever events are around this band of seven protagonists or whatever. Um, And something like this, where it's kind of a one-off, kind of a throwaway, hints at the past, definitely hints at the future – but doesn't necessarily and and feels significant without being imperatively vital to what's going on right now. 
Yeah, um, it's one of those things that can always be yeah. brought back up, but doesn't and necessarily right. have to be. Gives you plenty of of information and and fodder for for use later on, or whenever down the road that you want it. Um, this is what we call a plot hook. Yeah. Yep. Um, and and in terms of D anD D, it's always lovely to have plenty of plot hooks that you want to throw at your players, um, especially if it's plot hooks that are inherent to their character in some way. Mm-hmm. You uh, can even use them in. In other types of storytelling as well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of dispute over the quality of the production, but I love Lost, and Lost was nothing but a shit ton of plot hooks, very few of which were actually covered. Well, and we see plot hooks uh, referenced as other things quite often in media. Yeah. Chekhov's, Chekhov's gun is a plot mm-hmm. hook. Oh, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a plot hook you see coming. Uh, um. But things like that, you know, like the, oh, there's there's an ostensible there there is a weapon in the room. Well, somebody's going to get hit with that at some point. That's a plot hook. Um, you know, there's uh, a lover has gone missing, or something in a newspaper that somebody's reading off to the side that you know indicates something hap- something mysterious happening. That's a potential plot hook to for the future. And any any number of things, uh, you know, job postings on a job postings on an adventuring board. Uh, all of these could be potential plot hooks that maybe the adventurers don't take immediately, but they could come back to later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now that we're done talking about Jack's loose ends, um, the group wanders through town asking about uh, getting other healing potions and are told that they're pretty much controlled by the various temples in town. And instead of looking for them, they head back to the Slayer's Take to get on to get on with the trial. They arrive and are told about the others hunting the dragon in a small uh, that, that that the others were hunting a dragon and begin to immediately panic. Um, although uh, Tiberius assures them that Scanlan makes his specific thing is Scanlan makes good decisions, which <laughs> is a lie, um, and not the most comforting one. Um, <laughs> uh, but we 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 have a we have a little bit of little bit of panic and reassurances there, and then they are informed that in addition to uh, themselves, there will also be an established member of the guild going with them on their on their particular quest, and another uh, potential uh, Slayers Take member coming with them. Yep. Uh, the the, pro- the prospective human cleric is a cleric named Kashaw Vex, or sorry, Kashaw Vesh. Damn. Small, few letter names with V E. Um, right. Uh, he is so uh, as he comes in, sort of uh, you know disparaging the others as being late. Uh, we sort of get a we we get the all of these characters on their er selves. Uh, Tiberius being the most oblivious, uh, Vax being the most pretty, and Keyleth being the most Keyleth. Um, and as Keyleth is the most Keyleth, we get uh, sort of another bit of frustration from Kashaw asking Tiberius if she's always like this, which is a recurring joke that comes up several times throughout the thing. Oh, yeah. Huge yeah. amount of passive aggression and very little on the pa- passive, mostly on the aggression. And what I love with this, so we get obviously very strong. I mean, I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit because we've got Thorbeer as well. But. Um, what I love about the introduction of, of the guest stars this week is, first of all, we get a very strong, uh, a feel for both characters right off the bat. And I don't, this wasn't, 
I don't believe that this is necessarily intended, but they are such a a a flip tonally from the guest stars we had in the last two episodes. <laughs> the last two episodes are very. Uh, we, we had uh, um, uh, Zara and, and Lyra, who were very. I don't want to say comedic. Lyra was comedic, but but more uh, a dashing sort of sort suave, of suave kind of suave, yeah. or not necessarily Darn. like. Okay, so that was all Zara, and then Lyra was <laughs> funny right. and uh, but upbeat, and and they were both very um, outgoing types. Then you get Kisha and Thorbir, who are the polar opposite. And I really like the way that this these groups were sort of split off as they were to, I think we talked a little bit about this. I don't know. It's been fucking forever. But I think we talked about this in, in when we were talking about the, the, the first group, how the new, the guest stars were able to provide sort of a, uh, a new look at different types of characters interacting with yes, this, yes. with the group mm-hmm. because Keyleth is a little bit Lyra-ish in, in some degree, but it's definitely the, those two were, were a very different type that interacts with people. And then these two are Kisha and Thorbir are very much not like the, 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 the regular cast members that went along with that group or with, you know went along in the other direction so you know like the, we have so many good personality conflicts and character interactions between like uh Keyleth and Kasha and uh um Torbeer and anybody Torbeer and anybody but Vex in particular there right. mm-hmm. some of the Vex Torbeer uh interactions are amazing yeah um and so it made for a very, much like it did last one, but almost almost doubly so because we've already seen that sort of thing. So so the effect is a little bit more enhanced. We see a really good. It's always nice to see when these kinds of char- when, when characters interact with new personality types because we get to learn more about the characters, and it was it was played off very very well yeah. here. So uh, just to, to go ahead and bring him up to speed, we yeah, yes. we are, oh, shortly after the show, we are introduced with we are introduced to Thorbier, a grizzled dwarven fighter played by Will Wheaton. Um <clears throat> Keyleth is given the contract and reads it out to the group, which details that they are to hunt a Rakshasa, a tiger demon, basically. A, a, a tiger devil, sorry, from the nine hells. Uh Tiberius and Vax recall elements about them from their past studies and know that they will look for people to worship them or at the very least fear them. Kashaw is annoyed that the guild gives them such very little information. We sort of get, we we get a bit of you know we get we get quite actually quite a lot of Kashaw's character here. He is grumpy. Yes, Kashaw is Kashaw is the obstinately angry character, the one that is something has made this character angry a long time ago, and it never stopped. Basically, is what we're learning at this point, and and he's a very opposite sort of character to the rest of the party. Um, the sort of the closest kind of character we have previously encountered like him would be somebody like Grog. But, but right. where Grog is only angry 
when he's raging or when he's exuberantly angry and he's he's like happy to be angry which is a very well a very Mm -hmm. odd feeling whereas kashaw is just miserable kashaw's batman yes kashaw is worse than batman (laughs) i mean okay kashaw is ollie from arrow Uh, (laughs) yep (laughs) but yeah uh so we we and and just so he sort of looks very different from any type of uh we we do learn that he is a cleric but he's very different sort of cleric from what we've seen previously and and, yeah, and he's nothing like pike nothing in fact, at all he's like kind pike. of a polar opposite of pike almost Correct. yeah um so uh Kishaw, uh there's there's a bit of a confusion about the word quarry um with everyone thinking with a uh Kishaw and Keyleth thinking that they meant uh, like a stone quarry and the Huntmaster actually using it as the term quarry is in prey. Uh, and then Kashaw storms out of the hall with everyone else. In the street, they all attempt to find some idea as to where they should go. Kashaw takes a moment and casts a locate creature spell and gets a vague hint that what they seek is in the northeast. They begin to head in that direction when they come upon an area they've not been to, the Dusk Meadow, home to worshippers of the Raven Queen, a goddess of death and winter. Best goddess ever. At the border of this district, there's a long line of carts and shops, raucous behavior and drinking in a festival-type attitude. The area is starkly different to the rest of Vasselheim, and Keyleth locates a person selling masks and heads in that direction. Vax strikes up a conversation with the proprietor, asking about her masks and wares, and doing this sort of, I put out a bunch of money on the table and ask you for information, which is then immediately undercut by Keyleth genuinely wanting a mask, and we have Vax as... Keyleth tries to buy things, sliding a gold away and moving his his bribing gold separate from the purchasing masks gold, uh, which is a nice little character moment. As yep. he just mm-hmm. doesn't say anything, but just very pointedly slides one this way and the rest over here and continues his conversation. <laughs> <laughs> this is the this is the legitimate shopping money. This is the illicit purchase of information money. <laughs> this is the bribe money, up, please. Yes. yes. Yeah, it, it it's it's sort of a very brilliant little you you get a little bit more of an insight into Vax and and a how he acts when his sister's not there to, to bargain with people, and b sort of this is this is we're getting a little bit more of the loner Vax vibe right now. This is pr- images of what he might have been like when he was working by himself in Iman, um, or as we were, I believe, I don't know if that's been said in the story yet, but uh, as as his roguish ways in earlier levels. Um, uh, Keyleth finds a, ma- uh, uh, finds a mask that she likes, um, and he uh, and Vax asks the proprietor about anything out of the ordinary. Um, she tells him that there are often small scuffles between shop owners, uh, but that's pretty standard for the area, and does make mention that a few bodies had been recently fished out of the river in the dust meadow. Uh, she says word is that they were mauled by some sort of beast, but can't provide anything further. Further, but points in the direction of some bastions, the local guard, of, the local guard uh, set up by the temples of Vasselheim, um, and and indicates that they might be able to answer the question a little bit better. As everyone shuffles along, Torvir hangs back and asks for a mask that would fit a little girl, uh, which is a nice little character moment we, we mm-hmm. learn a little bit more about Tober and we, we i don't know that who he's buying this mask for is ever stated it is it is strongly this implied in the next episode yeah not in in, in this episode it's not though. yeah no um 
but uh, he 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 buys a a, a little a, a mask for a little girl, and um, the woman makes a comment that the color would look good on him, and he pays her and leaves. Um. Do, 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 do. Sorry, I lost my place. Uh, and they all cross Dustman proper to talk to the bastions that they had been pointed at. Now, um, interacting with guards. Guards are often a interesting NPC or or flavor aspect of a lot of things. We were talking earlier about how adventurers or people in stories often get in trouble with the law and either have to sidestep it or go through mm-hmm. it. Um, and 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 in in Guards, we tend to get an idea of what local politics or local life is like. What kind are these guards? Very abrasive and abusive. Are they just sort of incompetent? Are they easily bribable? Are they sort of scummy? What are they? What are their morals? How do they stand up? Things like um, in Waterdeep, the city guard is more of a military force than anything else um, because they have to deal with a lot of shit. In Vasselheim, the bastions, the guards, are sort of a religious militia. And the flavor of your guards informs a lot of your world. What do you, what, what, what do you guys think about how the bastions are flavored in this episode? Or at least, because this is the first time we really interact with them. Yeah, for um, the most part... Go ahead, Jeremy. Go ahead. No, go ahead. For the most part, I'd say... <laughs> I I definitely feel like, you know, as the the city guard, the city watch in any sort of fantasy setting is a standard trope um because it makes sense to have one. And yeah, I definitely like the idea uh and the concept that you can use them to flavor the uh the setting uh especially as regards, you know, civilian interaction with government because when civilians interact with government, the city guard is usually who they're going to be interacting mm-hmm. with for the bastions here um there's there's a level of sort of western religion to them i would say uh where they they do carry themselves as individuals who are sort of set <sighs> apart uh who are you know who for whatever reason consider themselves to have some level of a higher calling, which is frequently what you'll run into, especially in Protestant Christianity, um, for for individuals that are more involved with the religious um, day-to-day operations or whatever you want to call it. And I feel like the Bastions reflect that fairly well. So you're, you're working with a demographic that considers themselves probably above, but at least separate from the rank and file of the citizenry. And they they cover that fairly well with, with Mercer's deployment of them in this scenario where they're constantly making references to, you know, uh, people interfering in official business or putting their noses into the, uh, you know, a legitimate investigation or, you know, that that they're they're engaged or investigating things for which they have no jurisdiction or right to do so. So there's a level of separation there that I think is is pretty well uh performed. Um the other being a level of focus as well because when you are 
separate from the normal people, you generally hold yourself to a different standard or understand that you are being held to a different standard. Um, and as far as the, the, the sort of uneasy, uh, appreciation for, for bribery or the, um, the tendency to, to look at this band of adventurers as upstarts, um, but at the same time looking over their shoulder to a great extent to ensure that they're not doing anything that's going to come back and bite them on the ass. Because if they're going to be separate, if they're going to be above the citizenry, they have to at least have some flavor of legitimacy to back that up. So they can't be seen to be engaged in any level of misconduct, even if they feel perfectly justified in engaging in a certain level of misconduct. Those were the two things that jumped out at me the most. Yeah. Jeremy? Um, so it's funny, the first time that I the first time that I was I, I was walking through I legitimately missed the the religious overtones of of the bastions. I don't know whether it was just I was not paying close enough attention, or what. It wasn't until the second time watching through that I, that that I got it. And I feel like I mean it, it, it is definitely explicitly stated, but as events play out a little bit ahead of, of 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 where we are in sort of the recap they definitely have a feel to me of more fairly typical town guards is probably the easiest way to say in terms of like how the party deals with them yeah um uh I really like the flavor of them in terms of again one actually paying attention and see you know the Raven cloaks the Raven Queen stuff and and all I I definitely enjoy that I feel like it could have been leaned in a little bit more here um, taking mm-hmm. sort of a, a a a somewhat critical standpoint um, but they're I mean they're they're a pretty solid group overall. Yeah, I have I have what what some might term an unhealthy obsession with um, guard groups because I always like to make them very much a character of themselves, um, and so it's just something that whenever I see a group of guards depicted in a story, I'm always sort of focused on what are they like, what are they doing, how are they carrying themselves, what are they, rep- what do they represent, and what do they think they represent, and so it's it's always sort of interesting to me about other people's takes on guards. I- I assume you've read some Terry Pratchett. Mm, I yeah. haven't, actually. I've been told I need to, but I have if, not. If you're at all interested oh. in the use of guards as, <laughs> well, yes. A really good, a re- sort of a really good, um, one of the really good representations of guards in the video game is actually in Dragon Age, uh, Dragon Age 2. Um, one of the characters in the game is a guard and becomes a guard captain. And so you see a lot of the internal workings of the guards of the city that you're in. And it's just the, the the interactions that they have to go with, and sort of how they interact with the, the people, the city, the world, the monsters, the bandits, the whatever. Sort of, I I I appreciate that. It's not a very big part of the game, but I do appreciate it. Um, 
So they, yes, as they approach, they yes, they they walk across to talk to the bastions, and as they approach, they notice that one is in an alley relieving himself while the other is guarding the the way. Guard puts a hand on his rapier in warning, uh, sort of like saying, like, you know, hey, back off, we're here, because you can't see a guard peeing, obviously. Um, <laughs> the guard, uh, <laughs> not, I don't know why, but... Uh, well, Peter then you have to up the MPAA rating. And... Yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, Thorbeer uh, gets in his face and while Vax slips in behind them. The dwarf tries to stare the man down, but being a foot shorter than him, fails miserably with Will Wheaton's first... Natural one of the night. So first roll of the night. Uh, it's not. I don't think it's the first roll, but it's definitely. No, he did have one other. Yeah, because they, they, they was a two and then an eighteen. Started off with a two. He started off with um, a two, then he had an eighteen, then this was a one. So I feel like you know we we talk about this show in terms of narrative and and that kind of stuff, but I feel like this is such an important aspect. And rolling really low is an is is a is a phenomenon that is near and dear to my heart. I'm just talking about. Um, so uh, there's no other way. There, there's no other way to put it. Will rolls like shit, <laughs> like legendarily like shit, like my levels of shit. Yep. If he and I were in a game together, that would be the most fail fail filled game that there ever was. Um, that said, from a narrative standpoint, I really like it. I love, like, very few things. You know, there there are times when it's frustrating, of course. But I love seeing these great adventurers, including my own characters, um who have these noble goals, or even if not noble, these great important things and are supposed to be the stars of the story, failing and doing things that, that are not just, not just, you know, you fail to hit, but you, f- you slip and you fall on your face directly in front of your opponent and things like that. Because, first of all, it's funny as hell. Um, but second of all, just like I prefer to see characters that lean into their flaws, because I think that characters who don't have flaws are boring. <clears throat> Superman. Um, For some reason I thought you were going to like cough and say Seth at that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yeah, Seth has no flaws, right? Um, <laughs> no, no, but has lots of flaws. <laughs> um. I feel like if characters uh, just succeed all the time, then it takes the stakes out of when they do. There's no, why are we caring about whether they're getting in combat? They're going to trounce them anyways. Why do we care if, oh, look, he's going to try and and check for trap. Oh, look, he found the trap. Big surprise. Um, When you have somebody who is, whose lineage was, clearly cursed to roll dice poorly from very, very early on. And maybe it skipped many generations, but that just means it's all come down on one person. <laughs> um, it, 
It really makes things interesting, both in terms of giving the DM an opportunity to throw new and unexpected challenges up as a result of those failures. But it means that the times that that the characters do succeed, or even better, succeed in really big major ways that much more important and that much more celebratory like with 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 thorbeer spoiler alert he's going to roll ones a lot more and he's going to roll twos and threes and fours um so when he when eventually he starts it makes you want to cheer for him he makes you want to see him succeed um and that's something that I really appreciate in 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 characters who who do tend to roll low. Yeah, it's a built-in underdog story. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of character you make; it will be an underdog because fuck dice. And yeah, no, it's 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 some characters are unlucky, and Will yep. all of Will's characters are unlucky. Are horribly unlucky. Yep. Um, I don't, I don't have anything to add to that. Do you, Jack? No. Mm-mm. I mean, it's other than, you know, if you ever wanted to see a statistical anomaly made person and flesh, there's Will Wheaton. Yes. All right. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, his first one of the night. Uh, Vax peeks into the man who is adjusting his tunic and pants and uh, sees what appears to be a few glass vials. And he sort of very quickly pickpockets them and puts them away. Um, Thorbier holds out a few gold, which the Bastion scoffs at and begins to pull his rapier out, uh, at which point, uh, Tiberius tries to intervene, uh, and is soundly pushed away. Um, Torbier pulls out a few more coins, the man realizes that it appears, and, and then the other, uh, Bastion looks and realizes what this looks like and sort of drags everybody into the alleyway because, like, you know, we suppose, we're supposed to be at least somewhat rep- respectable. Let's move it out of the street where everybody can yeah. see. Well, harking back to what Jack had said previously about, you know, being held to a higher standard. Um, uh, satisfied with the with the amount of gold uh, uh, he's being paid, they begin to tell them that multiple bodies have been found, torn apart, and partially eaten, as if by some kind of beast. Uh, the most recent corpse found was that of a wealthy merchant from out of town who had been be- who had been around for nearly a month. His body was dumped outside a popular high end club called the Velvet Cabaret. A beggar saw the killing and claims it was done by some kind of lycanthrope, and when seen, it vanished into thin air. Cash mentions that he is familiar with the establishment, which is a little shocking to the Bastions before him. And as they walk and talk, Thorbeer attempts to recall anything about the rich merchant that was killed, but suddenly blanks on his name as he rolls his second one of the night. <laughs> uh, Tiberius recognizes the city that he's from, but not the name, and Kashar remembers that uh, when that man comes to town, there's always a, there's always a party, because he, he likes to flash a lot of high-end wares and items. Um, with that one minor clue, they go back into town and procure finer clothes and attempt to get into the cabaret. They decide to take on the assumed, uh, unassumed identity, with Vax and Keyleth playing the roles of Scalin and Coraline, the Lord and Lady Shorthold, along with their bodyguard, valet, and trusted advisor, Tiberius using Alter Self to appear as an elf. When they arrive, they are greeted by two bounces of the door. One of them is Siren, the woman they saw fighting at the Crucible before Grog's fight, and they are shortly introduced to Hosen, the dwarven second-in-command, to the honor of the Velvet Cabaret. 
as the group strolls through the place, the fir- they are the f- they are first hit with the amazing smell of cooking meats, sweet perfumes, and incense. The floors are lined with pillows and tables that are all very low to the ground, and patrons are lounging on pillows with scantily clad men and women uh, to tend to their needs. A number of people are playing dice and card games for money, and while still more are drinking, uh, drinking while an elf woman plays a large harp on a stage to provide ambiance and entertainment. Uh, uh, so let's talk about casinos and brothels for a minute, shall we? <laughs> and their purpose in fantasy storytelling. So any of you that are familiar with Game of Thrones will be familiar with the co- with the concept of sex position. Uh, yes. Sex position is when you have exposition while whores are having sex. <laughs> yes. um, and it doesn't have to be whores. That's just the more commonly used uh, 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 venue. Um, and what it does is it provides, in my mind, at least from a writing perspective, it provides a both a sense of privacy and a sense of vulnerability for characters. Because you're never more vulnerable than when you're nude, tied to a bed with a couple of women smearing peanut butter all over your body. Um, and you're never quite more talkative than when you feel like it, you are in the privacy, in, you know, in sort of a secure private area. Mm-hmm. So it, these kinds of establishments have lots of opportunity for very interesting character and narrative, uh, uh, um, the word that just leaped out of my mind, exposition, mm-hmm. um, and, and are often used in that way. Can you guys think of any other, like, other ways other than for expositionary and, and sort of uh, characterization purposes you would use these kinds of establishments? Well, I mean, anytime you want to attract eyeballs, put naked things on it. Um, you know, yeah. and I mean, there's 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 a level of sort of marketing and pragmatism to to some of those those scenes that you'll see, uh, you know, on whichever HBO series you happen to be watching at the time, <laughs> um, you know, and it's, yep. I mean, there's, there's a reason yep. that people recognize that as the pattern, you know, and the whole sex sells thing is a truism. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, you know, and when you're a writer, you know, your editor will sometimes tell you, you need more sex in your novel, sorry, you know, and that's just a thing that happens. Um, but, at the same time, just because something's got that content in it doesn't mean that the individual is a sellout or just trying to, you know, uh, garner as much gaze and buzz as they can. There are some very valid aspects to it. Sex is a huge aspect for a great number of people's lives. It's a very high <clears throat> priority for a large number of the population. And so the idea that it crops up in your your narratives should not surprise anybody either and and even for characters for whom it isn't a big deal um and for people for whom it isn't a big deal how they interact with people for whom it is a big deal can mm-hmm. be fairly interesting and can be an yep. interesting source of drama i find i also find that um the flavor of <laughs> That's probably the worst word to use in this case, but the flavor of your <laughs> brothels, um can inform a lot about your city and about mm-hmm. what kinds of people live there and what their attitudes on the red light district is, for instance. For instance, if it's well known enough that everyone knows where the red light district is, then it's not necessarily something that is hidden. It's not necessarily a secret. And that sort of informs the liberal the liberalities or, cons- or 
liberalities of the city, and then also flavors the conservative nature of some other characters you might encounter. Because right. you know, what kind of a character? What what? How conservative would a character be if they? were the type of person that disliked brothels, but lived in a city where there was a brothel every two buildings. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's just by its very nature, an interesting character. I mean, I feel like there is not a scene that can, there is not a style of scene. There is not a style of, of, of storyline moment that cannot work in one of those situations in, in, in such a setting. Um, you get the opportunity for huge amounts of character development and you get the opportunity for um, uh, obviously a lot of humor. Oh, there's, you know, just the, 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 the elements, as we said, the, the, the sex cells and, and that element in general, that will make it appealing on certain levels. I've had any number of characters in in games that I've run or stories that I've written who have either been there, been from there, used them, um, uh, uh, had to go in them in I've uh, you know like even undercover capacities or fight scenes that take place in them. I'm um desperately waiting for the time where whatever we're looking for in Eberron requires Seth to go under at, to go undercover as a boy. Do a not think I have <laughs> not considered it. I am <laughs> desperately <laughs> waiting for that because it's going to be so hilarious with no weapons and no armor <laughs> getting to a fight. <laughs> um, but I, I mean all of these are, they make great dynamic places in t- that you can set these kinds of things. I've had PCs who have built entire major parts of their income off building there was a, mm-hmm. a great party who had a who had a uh what was it the uh, uh kayla's treasure chest or something like that that was a brothel <laughs> in skullport that catered <laughs> that catered to um uh, uh, uh your typical residents of skullport who are not the traditionally more fairer humanoid race. Yeah. Um, uh, needless to say, that was an evil uh, 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 oriented campaign. Um, I don't know why they're bringing love and peace to the masses. Well, love and a peace to the masses. <laughs> um, and, and that well, created you, a lot uh, of really... Shot-lagging... Prostitute is not something you forget. <laughs> that created some really, really interesting demographics, and, and or not demographics, uh, 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 um, uh, dynamics. Uh, dynamics. That was the word that I was thinking of. Yep. Um, very interesting demographics too. But, I mean, <laughs> half Sahagan, half Drow. What <laughs> the hell happened here? Um, <laughs> Let's just say that the character had very few morals, and there was some stuff that I would never run in most in a lot of other games that took place. Um, we, really, we really need to do like a final show films after dark session. Apparently, now we really do. <laughs> um, but but it also created a lot of situations in terms of because there there's interesting character dynamics when you're somebody who oh, who is the proprietor of such a place oh. and. 
you get wealthy very quick and you live in the poor part, the, 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 the poorest of poor parts of a major metropolis <laughs> and then decide to move up and you have new money and you don't want to say where the money comes. Like, that's just one example of the many things that you can use. To, and I feel like it frustrates me when, when this kind of setting is used in most mainstream fiction and, and, and storytelling because it's used in such dull ways. Like I am a, I am a major hardcore heavy game of Thrones fan. And I love, love, love little finger, but the way that they first season that they stopped using it. Interestingly. Yes, they really did. Like the, the way that they used the brothels and that aspect of it was so conventional. And so even compared to like what happened in the, in the books, they, they, they went for the obvious sort of, sort of stupid method. It's for yeah, it was very like, that always ham fisted employment of the uh, yeah. Like I will never like there is the the classic sex position scene in there where like Littlefinger is almost more soliloquying than right. anything else. Well, there's a lesbian sex scene going on, not in the background, in the uh, foreground. That was that right. was the audition scene. He's, he's yeah, he's talking over them. Literally. Yes, he's <laughs> auditioning. Yeah, he's he's auditioning. He's auditioning a new prostitute. It was literally a case of mansplaining. Right, <laughs> like, and you're like, he was, he, he was, he was mansplaining to the prostitute that he was hiring. I understand that this is HBO, and that you that that you you feel like you need this stuff to get ratings because you're a premium service. But come on, yeah, right. Exercise creativity if you're gonna yes. have it, use it, or just use it as flavor and don't delve too far into it if you don't yes. feel comfortable going right. further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, Hosen leads the group through a mass of hanging silks that billow into a small room, a small amount of breeze that passes through the room, uh, where they're able to meet with the owner of the business about membership. Thorbeer notices the servants of the place all wear iron collars, providing an air of slavery, which turns his stomach a bit. The wait is short, and they're soon called into a room by a man's voice from inside. The room is lavish in its adornment, with a table in the middle. Cushions are scattered about the floor, three before the table and a few in the corners that a female servant sitting on them. They are asked to sit before the man, dark and dark complexion and covered it. Man who has a dark complexion is garden jewels. He introduced himself as Vince, uh, as Vince Sion, C- I forget how to pronounce the last name. Sinoir, Senor? Vince Sinoir? Anyways, Vince something. Uh, as he kisses Keyless hand, Keyless on the hand. She is instantly creeped out and casually wipes her hand off on the dress as she pulls her hand back and Vax chats up the man from across the table. Um, they have a bit of a conversation here where they sort of they're playing cat and mouse, where Vax is Vax is pretending to be this well wealthy merchant and trying. Well, they're trying, trying really hard. They're trying very hard. Vax um, Machina is the group that comes up with a really good story and then overplays it within the first thirty seconds. Yes. Now I, I do want to talk about because I was thinking about this earlier. Um, in 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 writing, when whenever. There are two ways to approach cover identities. Either you just came up with it and didn't come up with anything substantial to back it up, or you spend an inordinate amount of time establishing this cover identity and then, like, 
seeding the fact that you're here and that you're going to be doing things and then then approaching in with the cover identity. Go full Jared Leto. From a from a game master's perspective at this point, how do you deal with what is essentially the same deception check, but with one with no backup and with another with a ton of backup? This is oh, just easily. auto succeed. Yeah, no, 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 no lower no, difficulties. No. Right. Well, and or depending on how it's carried off, because yes. oh, sometimes yeah. a fast approach where you just throw out the base. Uh, element of deception and fake it with confidence and let the other person talk themselves into it for why they, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. That is the f- quick and dirty, you know, fairly light touch in and out, you know. Alternatively, you have the, you know, the Holmesian crazy, you know, build up this secret identity over a three-month period in preparation for this one night when you actually will step into the shoes of so-and-so and, you know, personify this new person who does not actually exist. You know, uh, that is a much more different, much more involved, uh, heavier-handed version both of which can conceivably have a similar effect, but it's whether or not you're you're going for the flyby or or the the long marathon. Yep. Yeah, it definitely depends on how it plays out once they get once they get to the execution of it. Because right. planning only does you so much if if they come up with this great stuff and then they oh, they they feel the need to reference it all unnecessarily sorry that's going to hurt your chances mm-hmm. if you don't plan anything and then you feel the need to start trying to explain stuff and you start contradicting yourself that's also going to hurt your chances but either one yep. can definitely definitely it's not about the preparation it's about the execution actually yeah yeah. So as the as um, Vax and Keyleth are trying to spin a tail, um, Tiberius has enough and dispels his alter self and turns into a dragonborn in the middle of the room. Um. Then they sort of press a little bit harder, press a little bit harder. Tiberius hits board again, and they start threatening this man's life. Um. First plan didn't look like it was going to work. Immediately drop it, go to plan three through seven, then go to threats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, it has its place and is fun. Um, oh, yeah. But is also something that we watch. will yeah. see again and again. Uh-huh. Um, so they, they sort of press him for information. Eventually he, he, he spills the beans that he's not actually the owner of this establishment. And somebody else is pulling his strings. And he sort of glances back towards the door, which Vax catches and looks over to see, uh, to see Hosen peering in the door. Um, this then turns into an extended chase sequence as the group uh, tries to chase down Hosen, who has a good head start on them. Um, plus can with turn some, invisible and shit. Mm-hmm. Plus can turn invisible and shit. Uh, with some confusion, with, with some polymorph silent, with some polymorph, some silent spells, um, and some uh, chasing down the hallway. Um, they, uh, the group follows after Hosen, leaving Thorbeer back in the room that he originally was in, who takes a moment to search the plates on the table for a quick snack, and Will Wheaton rolls his third natural one. <laughs> 
I don't remember what the result of this natural one was, other than that he didn't find any food. Uh, the no, the third natural one I think was, or maybe that was the fourth. He tried to bash down a door at. Some no, that, point. that was that, that that was later. Okay. That was the later. Um, That's the next one. The third one, he was looking for a snack and roll natural one. I don't remember what happened though. I think he uh, just didn't find anything. Yep. Because uh, not every natural one has to be the worst thing ever. You know, no. sometimes they can just be a failure. But back I kind out- of feel like it was. I'm having problems remembering specifically, but I kind of feel okay. like the sudden desire to find quick snack was the result of the one. Ah. And not, I'm looking for food, roll a one. Got it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, well, back uh, in the hallway in the chase, uh, Keyleth uh, tries to use hold person on Hosen, and the spell fails to take hold. Tiberius tries to use telekinesis to grab him, and the spell spell fails to take hold. Um, this is sort of when they realize that this Hosen is the entity that they're looking for. Um, they sort of collect themselves as Hosen vanishes and ch- give chase after him, at which point they're stopped by a, pair, by a trio of bouncers um, who try to ask questions, uh, but they're in a bubble of silence that Tiberius had placed earlier and cannot say anything audible. Um, Tiberius changes into Hosen, dispels the silence, and walks through the hall and tells them to go away fairly convincingly. Meanwhile, uh, Vax gets the... Uh, Vax uh, tries to kick open the door that uh, they... that to a room that they had seen Hosen go into um, and fails, stubbing his foot that had recently been healed. Uh, that is when... Uh, that's when Will goes and tries to axe the door question, um, <laughs> rolls another natural one, and sticks his and sticks his axe in the wall behind him, getting it stuck. And this is when Matt and says, "Not again." Yeah, not again. <laughs> as if it has happened before, because apparently it does. Um, and Matt changes out d twenties to see if that helps. <laughs> Spoilers: It doesn't. Vax, feeling very stupid that he tried to keep down the door, pulls out his lock picks and and picks the lock while Torbjir tries to uh, pull his axe out of the wall. Um. And he successfully does, the and they all Yakety Sax begins to play. Right, they all move into the room while Yakety Sax begins to play, and Torbier keeps pulling his axe. <laughs> Eventually, Torbier gets his axe out of out free of the wall and goes into the room where everyone has been looking for any sort of secret exit, and uh, they've been sort of looking around at walls and and behind and seeing if there's anything behind paintings or anything like that. And Torbier walks in, sees a rug on the floor, and yanks it up, finding nothing, which subjects him to ridicule on behalf of Keyleth. Uh, and we get another instance of our is she always like this joke that has been running throughout the episode. Uh, however, the pulling up the rug was not did not end as badly as he initially thought because uh, in some miracle of miracles, uh, rolling better than he had been previously, I think his second highest roll all night, um, Will's character Torbier spots a trapdoor underneath the bed. Uh, in this in this bedroom that they have found themselves in, they pry the, they pry the trapdoor open and find themselves dropping down into a tunnel leading away from the building. Uh, it's sort of a pitch dark hole, but I think everyone but Kashaw can see. So Kashaw lights up um, 
or not Kashal, Keyleth lights up. Um, no, not Keyleth. Tiberius lights something up, and I don't remember what it was. Yep. I think it's a dagger. Hmm. One of his daggers. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, because Tiberius is still looks like Hosen has drank a potion yes. of frost giant strength. Is dual wielding knives currently. Yes, going to he's going to turn out great. Tiberius has gone full cosplay. Um, yeah, and yeah, so they make their way down this tunnel. About fifty feet or so down the tunnel, Thorbeer pulls a spider web away from his face and realizes slightly too out too far after the fact that it was a tripwire. Um, Tiberius hears a boulder, hears stone grinding behind them, and suddenly a huge stone boulder, Indiana style, Indiana Jones style, slams into the floor and begins rolling towards them. They all take off running, realizing the path is now on a slow decline, which will allow the rock to pick up speed behind them. Tiberius stops and turns and springs up pillars of iron uh, from the walls. Uh, and the boulder slams into them, and the the uh, pillars manage to hold and keep from breaking. Um, which, with that that stopped, they now continue down the tunnel at a more normal speed, although the tunnel's incline does appear to be increasing. Mm-hmm. A few minutes later, they notice that the smell has gone from dusty to dank and wet, and as the moisture uh, as the air gets moist around them. Uh, the formerly dry floor is now wet and slimy, causing the flame to become somewhat more treacherous, and Kishaw and Keyleth notice water trickling down the walls and leaving little traces of minerals. Uh, Thorbeer, feeling, feeling very in his element underground, pauses to look at the floor, knowing that it is the easiest, knowing that uh, it is the easiest thing in the world to track is footprints in mud, which he can't seem to do, even if there were any, as he rolls a fifth one which was with advantage, and the advantage number that he rolled was a four. Kashal <laughs> uh, laughs at him, calling him useless, and then slips and falls, <laughs> falling out of sliding down the path out of view while screaming, which is a really great little kismet moment. Uh, they all look at each other for a moment, and Tiberius dives headfirst down the path after him. Keyleth sort of skips a couple of steps and also slides, leaving Thorbier and Vax at the top of the slide. They look at each other, shake their heads, and continue to walk rather than letting themselves slide. Uh, Kishaw and to- oh, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, as you do. Uh, yeah, you know, you don't yep. just slide to your death. Huh? Um, Kishaw in total darkness suddenly feels the floor below him disappear, and he hangs in air for a second before plummeting straight down, landing on a hard and spongy surface. Uh, sorry, landing hard on a spongy surface. Uh, and looks up at an increasingly large light as Tiberius and Keyleth come plunging into the room <laughs> after him. Uh, with the light, they can see that they are in a cistern that is likely 80 to 100 feet deep, uh, and about waist-deep in rotting vegetation and stagnant water, and what they can only be assume is hu- what they can only assume to be human and animal excrement. As they try and figure out what and how, uh, figure out how they're going to get out, a long tendril pops up and grabs the wall. A second one comes up and grabs another side, and two eye stalks appear atop a bulbous body with a gaping, toothy maw. Large thing slowly emerges from the, a large thing slowly emerges from the filth, and as the three at the bottom wonder where their two party members are, and that is where they ended with a ode to Star Wars in whatever's <laughs> in the trash compactor. Yep. Oh yeah. And that's where the uh, that was the end of the episode. We so um. Thoughts on the episode overall? I really love I I I love the trial of the take episodes. Period. But 
I really love the the juxtaposition comedy here. Um, I love like the other the other trial of the taken and a. From this point forward, it gets a little a, a little closer to to what that one was, but the trial of take was a very typical go. There's a monster here. Go find the monster, kill the monster, etc. This was much more. I really like the mystery aspect because it's not something that gets. Um, it's not something that gets enough focus in 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 D and D games, as far as I'm concerned. I really like the the the, the mystery element and the the investigation aspect of it. Um, to be fair, it's something that is very difficult to do a lot of the time because when you are when when you're plotting out, okay, well, this is who's really behind it, and here's all this stuff. You think that it's going to be a very clear, you know, easy way, or not necessarily easy, but it will not be difficult for the party to eventually find their way to the truth. And what you think is obvious is completely not obvious to anybody else unless they have that information. So I get why it doesn't show up, but when it does show up and it's done well like this, it becomes some of my favorite stuff because I, 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 I enjoy the, the hunting clues and the, the going undercover and all the humor and the tension and, and everything that, that interacted with that. Plus the meta comedy of just the rolling I just I feel for Will. I, I I I'm sympathetic. So now the trick the, the trick with the hunt sort of storyline though, especially in like an RPG setting, is that you have to you you as the game master or storyteller always need to give a little bit more information than you think you do. Yes, because oftentimes very it's very very easy for this sort of a story to get stalled and bogged down because no one can figure out what they're supposed to do because they haven't put together the very obvious clues that you feel you've left. Exactly. Not necessarily as obvious as you thought they were because you have more knowledge of the situation than they do. But it's also, um, it's a very, very, there is a very fine line between just the right, the right amount of clues and taking you like pretty much drawing a map of point A to point B to point C to point D, at which point it's not fun. You're just, yeah. And, and conversely, there's a yeah. very fine line between just right. Oh yeah. Clues. So it's, it's a very challenging uh, type of story to write and not yes. one that everyone can do. No. And, but when it works, it's so good. Give it a walking shadow. <laughs> <laughs> When you have a bunch of idiots playing vampire detectives, you have to throw them more than one bone. <laughs> yep. Yep, you do. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jack, you? Um, yeah, no, the... Like we had mentioned before, you know, the these episodes I find fantastic because we've had enough time to really understand kind of now who Vox Machina is both individually and as a group, and now we're getting to see them engage in some very focused, very detailed uh, 
dynamic interaction with a whole bunch of other characters um, who are very different than anybody that they usually adventure with. Um, and that's really fun um, on both sides. Both groups have their their fantastic strengths and, you know, some of some of the, the fan favorite characters come out of these episodes. Uh, the. I prefer, honestly, the second one because it digs more into the uh, the setting of Vasselheim itself. Um, I really enjoy getting closer looks at some of the other districts, you know, with the, uh, the Dust Meadow and the Quad Roads and, and things like that. Um, you know, getting our first references to like the Abundant Terrace and some of the 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 various bits and pieces that make up this big ancient city. Um, so yeah, this one was fantastic for me, not only from a from a character interaction, but also from a setting development perspective. Had a lot of fun with it. Yep, I I I I enjoyed it as well for all the reasons that I've said previously. Uh, throughout the thing, it's a fun part for me at the end because I don't have to repeat myself if I don't want to. <laughs> Anyways. So, uh, yeah, so that'll be it for episode 20. We'll see you guys next week again with episode 21. Uh, say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. See ya.